0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know this this pandemic has changed so many things, so many relationships between people too. Right, take a look at what's happening in Ottawa. Vaccines, vaccine mandates have sparked a lot of discussion. Even all the way to family court. You may have seen this story about a BC dad who is speaking out about how he says his COVID 19 vaccination status has actually reduced his parenting time with his two children. This is a story on globalnews.ca. You can check it out there. Now, family lawyer Scott Taylor says the B.C. Supreme Court decision could have far-reaching consequences for unvaccinated parents across Canada. We thought let's talk more about that. Scott Taylor joins us now, a family lawyer and founder of Taylor Law Group. Scott, thanks for being here.
2: Well, good morning, Simi. Good good morning. uh, This case does set a new precedent. There is a vaccine mandate in Canada to board a plane, uh, to board a train. And there hasn't been a vaccine mandate to be a parent up until now.
1: And do you think that's what this does? Is it that far reaching? Well
2: well, 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 like any precedent, uh, it, will it be followed or will it be ignored? That's really the key question. But if, if it's followed, it means that an unvaccinated parent is considered in this particular case, if the facts are the same, is considered a risk to his own children.
1: Right, but and, you're and saying the, if the, you said if the facts are the same, and that's a big if, if. Facts, that's right. Well, of course it is. Of
2: course it is. But but remember, the facts are basic facts. Unvaccinated parent. I mean, that that's the core of this case. It's an unvaccinated parent. Now, how many unvaccinated parents are there? How easy e- e- how easy is it to, to match this or to be similar to this particular case? It's really easy, right? It's, so
1: easy. But Scott, so, how many cases like this are there across the country? Like this would seem to me quite extreme that you would end up going to court over something like this. L-
2: l- listen, Simi, um, when parents separate, there's typically quite a bit of acrimony between them, so quite a bit, usually. And, and, and parenting, you know, discussing parenting time, negotiating, litigating parenting time amongst everything between parents. You know, it's not the sofa. It's the kids. It is the absolute core of every dispute. I mean, you can divide the property. Big deal. Dividing the children that that's what keeps. Well, that's what keeps family lawyers busy. But so what this means is if there's one other thing you can add in your particular case and say, you know, dad, oh, by the way, dad's not vaccinated or, oh, by the way, mom's not vaccinated. Is that all it takes to say, you know what? You're going to lose. You're going to lose your parenting time. And the scary part, the absolutely scary part is this particular client of mine wasn't opposed to the children's vaccination. Not not like some of these cases you see in Canada. So-and-so opposes mom does, dad does not whatever. There is no immunocompromised child, as there are in these other cases. These are two healthy kids, one unvaccinated parent. 63 hours of parenting time a week reduced to two two hours outside, everyone masked. Just think of that.
1: Okay, so you, that. now you weren't representing this person, but you did help him out.
2: Oh yeah, he, he was he was what, what you call a self represented person, but he came to me and said, "Look, I I need some help. I need to prepare for this. I need I'd like to restore the time that was temporarily taken away from me." So that's what I did. I, I prepared the materials. I helped him prepare his affidavit, his response, everything that I was hoping would suggest to the judge, you know what, that Ontario case, that's months ago. Right. That's that's, that's an old case. Don't use it. The children were too young to be vaccinated.
1: Scott, As well, I I wonder, I wonder though. Like you're a family lawyer, so you see this yeah. happen. But how often does a case like this end up in court? Like, are there not mechanisms to oh. put it off to mediation <laughs> or other avenues?
2: Well, you, you hope so, and and there's more of a trend, certainly, to do that. Absolutely, I mean, family court is typically the worst place you want to be with your family with your with your family matter. And there's wonderful alternatives, whether it's negotiation, mediation, litigation. You're right. It's the last resort. Absolutely. But there is nothing between parents that causes as much acrimony, frustration, and stress as who spends time with the kids? How much time do I get? How much time does the other parent get? Because you have to remember, Simi, as well, it's not just parenting time. Where the parenting time goes also defines the child support. So now you're mixing financial, emotional. So it's a stressful time.
1: Okay, so then Scott, what is the next step here? Like, is that the end of it? It is BC Supreme Court, or will there be <laughs> well, an appeal?
2: Well, I, I'm going to leave that up to to, to my client to, to make that to make that decision. So whether he there's a limited time to to do that to take steps, it's not, not an unlimited time. You can't take forever. So there's certain steps that have to be taken relatively quickly. If you choose to appeal, but that's his, you know, that's his choice. I mean, some people, you know, some people simply me say, just get vaccinated. There, there's lots of people out there that have said, you know what? what, what's his problem? Get vaccinated. But that's a choice that only he can make. And that's not a choice for me to make or right. anyone else for that matter. All right. Well, well I shouldn't say, I, you know, what? I just hope for the benefit of his children, they can reconnect again in the not-too-distant future. That's my hope.
1: All right, Scott, thank you so much for your time.
2: You're welcome, Sam. Interesting
1: case, yeah. Scott Taylor, family lawyer and founder of Taylor Law Group. He was helping out the client in this case. Uh, The father was representing himself in court, but Scott was helping him with information and preparing his brief. And essentially, um, BC Supreme Court decision has limited the amount of time that he could spend with his kids because of his, they say, vaccination status. He has to now not be indoors with the kids, that includes traveling in a vehicle, so you can see. I feel like this is not the end of this one. I think we're probably going to be hearing more about this.
0: this is mornings with Simi.
1: Well, should we do it? Vancouver is continuing to leave the door open on potentially being a host city during the 2026 FIFA world cup. Now 40 of those games will be played in the United States, Canada and Mexico will host 10 games each. And right now, just Toronto and Edmonton are in the running for those. Montreal backed out. And you may remember that BC took itself out of contention back in 2018 when then the new Premier John Horgan said, we're not writing a blank check for FIFA. So what has changed? Well, in an interview with Don Taylor and Rick Dollywall on Check TV, Premier John Horgan said that they are working on this once again, working on a bid because COVID-19 pandemic tourism industry, feels that this would now be beneficial. So what do you think? Should we do it? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Joining me now is Paul Dolan, Whitecaps TV analyst, former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach. Paul, thanks for being here.
3: Hi, Simmy, And the answer is yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise that you would say that. Why do you think we should do it?
3: Well, if you consider that what we've done with the Women's World Cup in 2015, what we successfully did with the Olympics in 2010, what it did for the city, what it did for tourism, what it did for attention around Vancouver, good attention, positive attention of what our city can offer and the legacy of what uh, a World Cup would do for this city, Uh, never mind what it does for the game. We spoke about that last time, how it uh, increases attention around the sport of soccer, it increases registrations. Canada qualifying for a World Cup is one thing. Uh, and look at how well Canada is doing right now in both the men's side, where we're a guaranteed lock to qualify for Qatar, and the women have uh, just won. Knock
1: wood, Paul, uh, knockwood wood. <laughs> just said that
3: right now. I'm not worried about it. The way they're playing, that one percent chance is never going to happen. And the women, obviously, winning Olympic gold too. It's never been a better time for Canada itself to celebrate the successes of canadian soccer and what it does for the city long term i think it's a win-win it's something in my opinion back in 2018 i understand that uh, the bc government doesn't want to write a blank check to fifa but you know considering that uh, some cities went in at that time and then did pull out afterward that's something that bc could have done as well and so i was disappointed when that Didn't happen originally, uh, but the fact that they're talking again now, I think is just fantastic.
1: That is, do you think, the part that makes people uncomfortable, right? We're talking about FIFA here, and FIFA not exactly known for being good with money.
3: Well, uh, I think one thing that maybe it's... Uh, a personal thing, because I know Victor Montaliani, and um you know he 's a friend of mine, and he happens to be the concacaf president and the fifa Vice President, and he lives just a few miles from b c place and there 's no chance that the you know the the boy who grew up in east vancouver is is going to allow um, I know, And I know he doesn't run FIFA, but there's no way that he's going to allow Vancouver to be taken advantage of. You know, in the end, they do the right thing. And as I said, I think uh, BC could have backed out again at the end if they didn't think that the terms were right. Uh, I think that now, obviously, with the way things have changed over the last four years, as John Horgan said yesterday, that they can come to an agreement. And I think that could happen by the end of March.
1: Oh, so you think this could ha- this is a good chance of being done?
3: Well... Yeah, from what I'm hearing on both sides, and you know, uh, what John Horgan said yesterday, I don't think he's going to say publicly unless they're far down the road. So they've been talking about this, and it sounds like it's something that is very close to happening. They're open to now, and so I think that that is going to happen. And uh, believe it or not, Vancouver, who'd completely been out of the running for such a long period of time, all of a sudden, I think not only becomes... Um, you know, one of the Canadian cities, along with possibly Edmonton and Toronto. I think Toronto is a lock for sure as well to be chosen. But it could be a city that hosts three or four or five games, meaning that there could be a knockout game or two here rather than just group stage games. And that brings even more focus and attention to Vancouver and BC plays.
1: What does it take to put something like this on, Paul? Can we do it?
3: Oh, absolutely. And and the reason I say that is with that history that I mentioned with the Olympics. If you can pull off an Olympics, uh, you can pull off a single uh, event or a single venue event like uh, a World Cup. Now, in saying that, uh, it is kind of like a Super Bowl or a Grey Cup. You know, it's uh, not just what goes on at BC Place Stadium. Of course, you need uh, all the infrastructure around that. But Vancouver is absolutely positioned to do that as we did with the women's world cup where there was 55,000 in there for the final between the U S and Japan. And yes, this is a, a little bit of a grander scale. Remember there's 48 teams in 2026. So it's a bigger event overall, but what happens in the city of Vancouver and in BC in particular, uh, doesn't really change from the scope of what was here for the women's world cup.
1: Right. What does it take to put something like this on? You talked about this, this it's a bigger spotlight. It's a bigger stage. What does it take to be, make it successful?
3: You know, if I knew that, I'd be in that uh, organizing committee. That, that is a difficult one. Um, you know, what, what, what it all entails. Personally, I don't think that it means uh, doing all that much more than we already have. It's not like we need to build a sea to sky highway like we did for the Olympics. It's not like we need to build new venues like we did for the Olympics. We've got BC Place And, uh, you know, it was refurbished for half a billion dollars. It's a a beautiful facility. The key thing that needs to be changed will be the surface, because for sure that'll be a grass surface rather than the artificial turf that they have right now. So there's some infrastructure needs. And then just some, you know, upgrade security around the stadium, this type of thing. Uh, But it's very doable, in my opinion. And from everyone that I've spoken to on both sides, I'm sure this is something that is not going to be a block to it.
1: Right, Vancouver
3: the, hosting a World Cup game.
1: The turf situation was one that, I mean, that's pretty controversial, right? I'm thinking about that during the Women's World Cup and and how that was such a big deal. How expensive is that?
3: Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to be a deal-breaker by any means. It, it'll be a million or two or maybe three or four, but it's not something that when you're talking about the magnitude of a World Cup is going to be something that uh, puts off Vancouver hosting a game. They did it when the United States hosted... In 1994, Detroit, for instance, inside the Silverdome, I don't know if you remember, that stadium didn't even have a removable roof like BC Place has uh, that can be opened up, but that stadium had the uh, artificial surface covered with grass and was a playable World Cup surface.
1: Okay, so you're sounding pretty positive about this.
3: (laughs) Yeah. You feel like uh, it's going to be done? I I do think it's going to be done, and who'd have thought that even uh, just a few months ago? But this isn't just something I think that has overnight Uh, been working on, uh, you know, to get to the point where we're at now. I think it's been something that from day one when it didn't happen was a shocker to everyone, I think, in the soccer community. It was, I think, a bit of a shock to FIFA as well at that point. Like, would you not even want to be on the list to be considered where you could pull out later? I think it was a mistake by the B.C. government to so quickly say no, and I know that, you know, again, things are different four years ago, uh, but it was good to see John Horgan, on the show yesterday on Donnie and Dolly kind of acknowledged that Mm -hmm. it's something that we should be a part of and that they're looking forward to being a part of.
1: We'll see what happens. Paul, thank you.
3: Okay, thanks, Jimmy.
1: Paul Dolan, Whitecaps TV analyst, former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach, talking about the 2026 FIFA World Cup. Could we be in line to host some games? Premier John Horgan saying yesterday, yeah, it's back on the table. They're trying to work things out. I'm going to be really honest with you here. I actually never thought that we weren't going to host the games. I figured at some point, how could you come to the World Cup to Canada, and not have a couple of games in Vancouver. I always figured last minute they would figure something out, and it certainly sounds like they're heading down that path.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, good news for farmers and food producers in the hard-hit flooding areas of our province. Now, the government announced yesterday a pretty big funding package to help them out, all those who were impacted by those record-breaking floods that we had in November. It's about $228 million in provincial and federal money that will go towards needs not covered by existing programs or private insurance. So what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, returning flood-impacted land and buildings to their previous state, replacing some perennial plants, such as blueberries, uh, the care of animals, you name it. So how how does this impact different groups out there? Joining us now is Julia Smith, president of the Small Scale Meat Producers Association. Julia, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Tell me, how did the flooding situation back in November impact some of your members? Well, I'm I'm based here
4: in the Nicola Valley, so that's kind of what I have experienced personally and been boots on the ground with. And the the flooding situation here was devastating. Um, people lost. Entire sections of their property. Uh, It wasn't so much a case like we saw in the Fraser Valley where the floodwaters came up and then they receded. Here we have situations where the river has carved a new path through people's properties and it's still there and the land is gone. Uh, They lost tremendous amounts of infrastructure fencing, corrals, cattle handling systems, greenhouses. Uh, It was quite devastating here.
1: I don't even know, how do you even begin to rebuild after a situation like that?
4: Well, that's been the question, and and we haven't been able to make any plans because we only heard about what the program was going to look like yesterday. So we're announced, but now we kind of start making plans. Now it's been, okay, what can we do to just stop the house from going? You know, we've just been dealing with emergency emergencies.
1: Um, Julia, let me ask you then, from the announcement yesterday then, is that what um, your association was looking for? Will this be helpful or do you think there's still some things that could be done?
4: I think this will be helpful to the majority of producers who were affected. It's a it's a reasonable program. I'm happy to see that they're covering up to 90% for the smaller scale farms um, versus the 70% for the large guys. I thought that was great. Um I'm just concerned that we didn't see a lot of boots on the ground here in the planning stages of this and I just I sure hope that they've taken into account the severe devastation that we have here because you know we have situations where okay they'll they'll pay up to 90% of the market value of the property but that's not going to be enough and so people are going to be you know in situations where they'll they'll just have to walk away
1: are we going to lose producers over this? Do you think will is that what's going to happen?
4: I think we'll lose some. I, again, I think this will be great for the majority of producers. I'm a little bit concerned about the criteria that to be uninsurable losses because there's there's a lot of small scale producers right now who simply can't afford the insurance. It's just so astronomical the insurance is more than the net income of their farms. And so I hope there's going to be some flexibility around the word uninsurable.
1: Right. And I guess the idea how accessible is this program? I know in previously with other programs, there's been some concerns about accessibility. Have you heard anything about that?
4: That was one of the first questions I asked, actually, when I heard it was coming out last week. And I'm really happy to hear that they have added 20 additional staff to deal with this. I know we have... People coming out here tomorrow with boots on the ground to start helping producers get through this process. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about that part of it. I, I do believe that everybody has the best intentions and wants to help. Um, I just I really hope that it's going to be enough for for the Nicola Valley here.
1: How much, Julia, has your association grown in the last ten years? Because it seems to me that even with consumers, there's much more of a movement towards knowing where your food comes from, including your meat.
4: Well, our association only was established four years ago, and so we've grown a lot in the last. I would imagine, yeah. Um, And we're actually really excited. We're going to be. Announcing the results of an extensive survey of the whole industry that we undertook last year. We had 708 participants and we'll be announcing that in March. On March 9th, we're going to have a webinar. And so if anyone's interested in knowing what what's really going on with small-scale meat in this province, that'll be a great opportunity for them to find out.
1: What qualifies as a small-scale meat producer?
4: Oh that's always the question that was one of the questions that came up when we first established we've sort of loosely defined it as people that are producing meat outside of the conventional system because that seems to pretty much define our membership uh, it's people that you know they're they're operating smaller scale pasture based and very often the the thing that defines us is that we are marketing direct to consumer instead of um, feeding into a commodity-based distribution system.
1: Right, and that is very popular right now. So on the whole then, Julia, would you say you're optimistic with what you heard yesterday? I'm very optimistic.
4: I'm a farmer. I mean, we're optimistic by nature we wouldn't do this.
1: I guess you really have to be, especially after the last year.
4: Yeah, optimistic and bad at math.
1: (laughs) I'm sure that's a a farmer joke that you probably hear a lot, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. You guys tell it all the time. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. Great to hear from you. And best of luck. That's Julia Smith, president of the Small Scale Meat Producers Association. I, for one, am fascinated. One, they only got started four years ago, and I can understand that because the growth in kind of direct-to-consumer ranching and meat producing has been, I would say, explosive over the last five years. I think you as a consumer, I hear that from people more and more all the time, is that I prefer to buy it directly from the farm this organization, this association helps, you know, farmers do exactly that. And they say from what they heard yesterday from the government, they are optimistic. It's a package, it's about two hundred and twenty eight million dollars in provincial and federal cash and it goes towards the essentially needs that are not covered by existing programs or private insurance. So it'll help farmers replant crops. It'll help with the repair of uninsurable farm infrastructure and care for animals. All the things that kind of would fall through the cracks not covered by insurance, this fund is supposed to help out with.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Housing affordability has been in this crisis-like situation, it feels like, for a few years now. And yet, somehow, despite all of that, Canadians are somehow feeling optimistic about it. A recent poll showed that although home prices have definitely increased, there is hope and expectation that those prices will decline by as much as 20%. Where is this coming from? Our Raji Sohal joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah,
5: it's coming from that announcement from the Bank of Canada where they told us uh, that we can expect interest rates to climb. And so that got people thinking, okay, well, if interest rates are gonna climb. Some people are gonna fall out of the game of chasing for a home and then maybe I have a chance. But I read that um, poll and I just thought, what, that is not what I am hearing (laughs) amongst my peers. I mean, millennial friends of mine are seeing things very differently and it's maybe the most pessimistic time of all for them. And I talked to this uh, one woman, May, and she and her husband are in their late 30s. They're entrepreneurs, they work in consulting, and they are solid income earners. They currently spend that income in great part on renting a very nice place downtown, but they've wanted to buy for a long time. And they should be able to get into the market, right? With both of them making so much and they don't have any kids, but they have zero help from their family. So down payment is on them. Here's May.
6: We started with, you know, wanting a detached home, but we were like, these this these prices are way too high. And also the homes are are maybe too big for us. We're just two people. We don't need that much room. And then prices got even higher. And then we started looking for townhomes or condos. Prices got higher. We started looking outside of the lower mainland, into the Okanagan. And then inventory just dried up. It's changed so drastically in the last two years where you would have had time to, you know, consider a property. Now, when a property shows up that's within, you know, our price bracket, we have to jump on it. And if we don't jump on it, somebody else will, and somebody else probably has. So that's kind of where we are right now. We're priced out of the lower mainland. So we're starting to look elsewhere um into calgary of all places and and bc has been our home for over a decade so it's really difficult to think of
1: leaving so Raji, let me play devil's advocate here for a second yeah isn't hasn't it always been a part of that progression of when you decide to buy a home that you're not necessarily going to be able to afford exactly where you want to afford
5: for sure, for sure. So they have they started out being like, oh, we want to live in Vancouver. Then they went, okay, let's live. Let's look at South Surrey. Let's look at Langley. Um, and then those places, as you know, have become also less affordable quickly too. Then they branched out and started going in the Okanagan. They were putting in offers on places and being outbid by others by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, she told me about a case where they their only subject was subject to inspection and uh, they They lost their place in line. Um, So they're feeling pretty desperate. And it's to the point that, yeah, they're thinking of leaving. They're going to a province where they don't have any connections, but uh, where they feel like they can get a very good place, like good value uh, and still have it be affordable. But we get, in some cases, I feel like so stuck on thinking of families, right? Families sometimes are our default. And certainly I've known plenty of millennial and Gen Z couples who, who've who moved out to Nelson or Pemberton, other places in BC, so they could have a little bit of land because that's what they uh, prioritized. But mostly because they're families, they want that land. And here's a couple that's well-earning, contributing a, a lot to their communities in Vancouver. They desperately do want to stay. They want to stay, Simi, but they could yes, they could rent forever here, right? But they don't want to rent. May says there's too much instability and insecurity if you rent.
6: If you think about our hierarchy of needs, safety and home is is at the very base of it, and it's not something that we have right now. I mean, with these increased housing prices comes increased rent uh, prices. So even though I feel safe in my rental, relatively. My landlord could say, I'm moving back in, and and then he could move back in for a brief minute and then increase the rent for the next person. Or, you know, he could, the classic rent eviction. The idea with owning your own home means that we're locked into this price. I've purchased it for X number of dollars, and I know within, you know, a few percentage points, this is how much I'm going to be paying per month for X number of years. Whereas with renting, it can increase, You know, there's all sorts of instability. Our landlord could decide to sell tomorrow and, and the new owners could decide to move in or decide to kick us out. And then we would have to move again and find a new place and uproot our entire lives all over again. So there's just no stability there, no safety. That's the biggest, biggest problem. We don't have a secure future, um, at least not in this province, not in British Columbia.
1: I guess, Roger, what's scary about that is that this is not a good time to be looking for something more permanent because there's nothing available out there.
5: There's nothing. There's nothing. You know, I walk around uh, my neighborhood and beyond and I see for sale signs up for a day. (laughs) A day. Yeah. And they've gotten enough interest that they pull it down. Um, and people are, like I said earlier, going for things uh, where they can have zero subjects, um, get that deal done as efficiently and quickly as possible. And so, yeah, there's just no inventory. Um, so I, I don't know about this, this poll saying that there's optimism in the air because I'm not hearing it from people who are, are looking to purchase right now.
1: I guess that's a lot of reliance on having interest rates go up, not understanding that there's a whole other cascade of issues that come along with having interest rates go up. Uh, okay. House prices may come down, but can you still yeah. afford the payment if interest rates go up?
5: Yeah, exactly. And, and this couple, um, they, they spend a lot on their rent. They might even spend more on their rent than, uh, most people pay on their mortgage. Cause we're now at that point in Vancouver and, you know, uh, pe- landlords often get demonized, um, in stories because uh, of doing things like rent evictions and whatnot but there are also landlords out there who only have one rental and they use it they depend on it for their yeah. own financial situation that's a lot of people it's a bit
1: of a mess out there all right Raji thank you thanks Simi if you want to weigh in on that uh, simi at cknw.com or you can call our buzzline line
0: 604-331-2899 this is mornings with Simi
1: Just a reminder here, you still have a couple minutes to get in on this. We have a pair of tickets to give away. To grandstand tickets, I should say. These are grandstand tickets to the Canadian E-Fest, which is happening June the 30th to July 2nd. All we need from you is a story. We need a story of that person in your life that makes your heart race. You know, your your palms get a little sweaty maybe when they look at you, you think oh yeah, your heart goes a little bit faster. We want to hear about that. We want to hear about the story maybe how you met, how you knew this person was the one. Call our buzz line, leave your name and number 604-331-2899. We're going to pick a winner for today, coming up in a few minutes, so you still have some time to get your story in there. Right now, we're going to talk about jobs. We got the forecast for British Columbia yesterday, and it turns out our province is forecasting more than 630,000 people are going to retire from their jobs through twenty thirty two. That's a lot of jobs that are going to need to be filled. Let's talk more about the labour market outlook for BC. Joining us now is Ann Kang, Minister of Advanced Education and Skills Training. Thank you very much for joining us.
7: Good morning, Simi. Good to join everyone here.
1: What do we know about the types of jobs that we're talking about?
7: Well, we know that uh, there will be a lot of uh, industries with uh, job openings, we're looking at uh, five industries that are on the top of uh, the list this year: uh, healthcare and social assistance with 14%. That's approximately 100 and uh, sorry, 142 million thousand job openings, as well as professional, scientific, and technical services. Um, the, the third category will be in retail. Uh, fourth category in construction, and fifth category in accommodation and food services. So, five top industries.
1: Right. It, so it sounds like then a lot of these jobs will require some kind of training or post-secondary education?
7: That's right. We're looking at these uh, high-opportunity occupations. And what we mean by that is those with stronger demand and higher wages than others so um, when we take a look at these uh, 100 and top opportunities that we have here, 80 positions will require some sort of a degree, such as a bachelor's or, or a professional degree. Five would require an apprenticeship, and I'm working through that with Parliamentary Secretary of Skills Training, Andrew Mercier, on skilled trade certification. We also know that 38 of these categories will require a certificate or a diploma and only seven require a high school training. So we are going to be creating a climate where uh, lifelong learning is is um, a culture of British Columbia, where we're also going to make sure that uh, uh, advanced education here in British Columbia is affordable, accessible, and relevant to workers.
1: Okay, how do we do all that though? Because that sounds very ambitious and not a whole lot of time. I mean, this is happening in the next 10 years.
7: That's that, that's right, Sami. And we have been doing this since 2017. Um, we have supports uh, and, and investments made in advanced education in terms of expanding the tuition waiver program for former youth in care, as well introducing adult free, uh, sorry, tuition free adult upgrading, so that adults can go back to school, uh, cutting interest on student loans, making um, our endeavors in advanced education more affordable. And creating the BC Graduate Scholarship Program, as well as opening, uh, expanding open education resources. So we have been doing this since 2017. Um, we have uh, more uh, in-demand spaces, and we're going to be creating uh, targeted spaces for specialized programs such as healthcare, um, science and tech, uh, you know, construction uh, trades. So we'll be doing that in partnership with our public post secondary institutions.
1: Okay, so it sounds like though like that's so many jobs. I wonder do we have enough people to fill all those? Where are we going to find these people?
7: Well, one of the, the there's many multiple layers, but one of the solutions is here right in British Columbia. We know that we have 150,000 people in British Columbia who are not working right now, but they want to work. And so uh, the career search tool that we have, uh, workbc.ca, our website is refreshed and we have new tools there so that users can search for careers of interest um, using eight possible filter categories, such as region. Where are you from? Where are you living? I want to find a job here. Education. Education. You know, do I need um, a, a certificate or do I need a professional um, a diploma? Um, and also occupation interest, industry, occupational category, and if you want to work full-time or part-time, because not everybody wants to work full-time. And we're going to make sure that the support services are there. For example, we're working on uh, a Made in BC childcare plan. And I know with availability of affordable and quality childcare, that young parents will be able to get back to work if they, cho- if they choose to do so.
1: Right. So that's a lot of skills training that we're talking about here. And it sounds like the government's going to have to be very active in doing this, though.
7: That's right. And not this is not only the the responsibility of government, but we'll be be working with public post-secondary institutions. We'll be working with private institutions as well as training facilities because I know that industries, um, uh, employers, they they all want the best quality worker. And whether that is uh, through uh, work-integrated learning programs so they could work and learn at the same time, or uh, whether that's through apprenticeship programs so that they can go and and get um, a a skilled trade and then go work as an apprentice and come back and work again. It's a a 20% in the classroom, 80% in the workplace, and people just love working in British Columbia, and we want them to be successful. So the the support is going to be there for those who are looking for them, and that's workbc.ca.
1: Okay, so are these going to be well-paying jobs? What do we know about that?
7: Well, the 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 goal is to make sure that we have well-paying jobs. So, uh for example, um when we look at uh, automotive service technicians, um there is or or trucks and bus mechanics and mechanical repairs. Um top on the apprenticeships list uh, there's 6,600 openings and wages up to 41.35 dollars per hour. So, we are creating jobs We want to be creating jobs, and we want to give workers the ability to upgrade and upskill so that they can find a higher-paying job.
1: All right, more work to do. Uh, Thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Anne Kang, Minister of Advanced Education and Skills Training. This sounds like a challenge for us here in B.C. More than 630,000 people are going to retire from their jobs now until 2032, meaning a lot of employers out there are going to be looking to fill positions. And that doesn't even count any kind of expansion. So in total, the province with their labor market outlook is predicting a little over 1 million total job openings over the next decade. That includes all the retirements and 400,000 other openings too. So how do we fill all those jobs? And they're also saying 80% of those future job openings will require some level of training or post-secondary education as the jobs become more and more skillful.